0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. This is podcast number 10. We're already up that far. And today I want to devote my comments to an issue which has been around for quite some time and is one that will... Probably be more important in the years to come in light of events internationally and that topic is radicalization in prisons. The reason why I think it'll become something that people worry a lot more about has to do with the topic of a previous podcast i.e. foreign fighters those people from our countries who elected to leave join terrorist groups such as Islamic State some of whom are still alive and are either in prison abroad or want to come home and we may find that we have to try them and incarcerate them leading to the question is then what? It's one thing to gather evidence, hold trials, obtain convictions and send them to prison, that doesn't end the story. You're now stuck with somebody who could in fact have a very strong hold on a very violent ideology and you have to decide what to do with them at that point. So, I want to talk about prison radicalization. But the reason why this topic came to the fore for me today is in light of a very recent story that is the last couple of days. And that's the story of John Walker Lynn. So, John Walker Lind, aka the American Taliban, a lot of people know about him. He had uh, converted to Islam when living in California in the 1990s. He ended up uh, traveling, or so he claims to the Middle East to study the Quran, but found himself, in fact, in Afghanistan, essentially fighting for the Taliban. And his life took a dramatic turn for the worse in 2001, post-9-11, where he was essentially captured, very badly wounded, after a prison break in which uh, several hundred Taliban soldiers had attacked the guards. Uh, Some Americans died, including a CIA advisor named john Spann, mr Lin, in fact was captured and of course in the post 9 11 environment uh, the actual role he played in, in with the taliban whether it was some kind of internecine battle or intra-afghanistan battle or in fact he was part of al-qaeda it really didn't matter right you're talking about uh, a country that had just been hit by the al-qaeda the attacks in the world trade center and in washington and no one wanted to worry about the details of who did what, where, to whom. And so Mr. Lin essentially became America's terrorist. And in fact, he had a trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years. The reason why this has become news now is that he has been released 17 years into his sentence. And this is becoming a quite the brouhaha uh, south of the border, speaking as a Canadian. Many people saying he should sit there forever, he should rot, he's a terrorist, he killed Americans. Why are we letting him out? He should never see the light of day again. There's an op-ed piece in the Washington Post that says, well, actually, uh, it's part of due process. He was assigned a 20-year sentence. It is usual, at least in Canada, it's usual, I can't speak of American justice, for people to be released before the maximum sentence, in fact, is filled out. So we got it a little bit early, but people are very very angry at the fact that this man as i said a terrorist an islamist extremist someone who fought with the taliban may or may not have had allegiances to al-qaeda in fact has gotten out uh, free the other allegations that have been made with respect to mr lin is that he has not changed his ideology since his capture in 2001 meaning he still is an islamist extremist and there's some reports about him translating some material or other types of activities which seem to indicate that he in fact uh, is the same man he was almost 20 years ago now and therefore why is the American justice system allowing a can not just a convicted terrorist but somebody who still believes in the terrorist ideology why is it allowing that person to to become free why isn't he there at least for this 20 years if not him in throw away the key and then collect him when he's dead this speaks to a much greater issue as i noted at the onset of this podcast and that's the issue of prison radicalization i want to talk about this at a a couple of levels first of all what do we mean by prison radicalization well this is the phenomenon the reality that within prison systems there is a very uh, strong possibility if not probability That when you incarcerate people on terrorist convictions, whatever that terrorist ideology or movement is, you essentially create a potential breeding ground for other prisoners to become radicalized by, in fact, those who've been incarcerated for for, for terrorism. What this means is that terrorist prisoners have a, no pun intended, captive audience that they can pass their ideology onto, they can recruit. They can teach, they can train, they can tutor, and they can steep these people in the same types of hateful views on things that terrorists have. And we certainly have seen uh, around the world where uh, prisons have become incubators for future terrorism. One of the best examples being, of course, in Iraq, post 2003, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, was in fact in prison uh, in Iraq. And of course, he was eventually released and look where we are now. We have the perhaps the most heinous terrorist group in history being led by a man who essentially was radicalized in prison. Uh, the French have a huge problem with prison radicalization, uh, less so here in Canada. And, and one of the reasons for that is that we simply have so few terrorists in prison, at least those who have been convicted on terrorism charges. But still, we know that prison radicalization is a problem. And so the question then becomes, well, what do you do about it? How bad is the problem? What kinds of approaches should you in fact adopt to prevent prison radicalization from becoming a scourge, from becoming a phenomenon that is is out of control? The last thing you want is to have people who are incarcerated for anything other than terrorism to come out on the other end, having concluded their sentences as now heavily um, ideologically committed people who are now terrorists and that then pose a different threat to society as opposed to the threat they posed upon entry, i.e. as common criminals, gangbangers, whatever crime they committed that landed them in jail in the first place. One of the most fundamental issues when you talk about prison radicalization and how to prevent it, this goes back a long, long way, is a very simple dichotomy. If you have a, a critical mass of terrorists that you've convicted, in accordance with your legal and justice systems, you have two choices. You can elect to concentrate terrorist prisoners in one or two institutions. In other words, keep them together. Or you can decide to lessen the burden on any one institution by spreading them throughout the penitentiary system. Both have their pluses and minuses, obviously. If you concentrate them in one or a small number of institutions, at least you contain the problem to some extent. The downside, of course, is that if you do have a critical mass of people all in the same institution, they simply feed off each other, and this is a, this appears to what is this appears to be what has happened in the UK, for example. I was just reading the New York Times, and I'll, I'll post a link to this about a group called al muhajirun which has been in the UK for quite some time, very radical Islamist organization. Um, a man called Aljam Chowdhury was the leader, and he's getting out of prison uh, very very soon after serving. A, A sentence. It took him a long long time for the Brits to convict him, to get the evidence to convict him. But it seems that, in fact, there was a cohort within the British penal system in which these guys basically reinforced each other's views. So that's the downside of concentrating them uh, all in one or two institutions. So what about spreading the load? Well, you get away from the concentration issue, meaning you don't have as many people who can basically form cliques or form groups that reinforce each other's views The downside is obvious, is that you open up the possibility of other radicalization to violence across a greater number of institutions, which means, in fact, that the grand total of individuals who come out on the other end as violent radicals, as opposed to violent inmates, has the potential to increase significantly. So, there definitely are um, a number of considerations that have to come into play. When it comes to prison radicalization and what to do with those who are found guilty of terrorist offenses. That's the first thing you have to worry about. So let's assume a decision is made either to concentrate or to um, spread out the numbers of, of radical terrorist prisoners. Then there's the issue of, well, what next? What kinds of programs are out there to address this issue? Are there so-called de-radicalization strategies? And and you'll know by now from the podcast that I've already made, I'm not a big fan of de-radicalization as a concept. But nevertheless, there are efforts to bring people in, to try to speak to these individuals, to try to get them to see the error of their interpretation of faith, to see how they have misconstrued history, how they have misconstrued current events, and to get them to essentially abandon the ideology. Well, that's certainly one possibility, and I'm aware of programs even here in Canada, where mainstream, normative Islamic, religious people, imams, etc., will go into prisons to talk to terrorist prisoners, to try to have that religious conversation with them. Whether or not it works, I think is a an interesting question. I certainly know, uh, based on examples in other countries like like Indonesia, it has failed miserably, meaning the terrorists. Convicts want nothing to do with normative or mainstream Islam. They will not listen to or even give the time of day to imams that come in from the outside to have that conversation with them. So is that necessarily a solution? Well, a lot of countries at least try it. Whether or not it has any effect it is hard to say. And sometimes the effects are difficult to measure insofar as they take a very, very long time to manifest themselves. So even if you have a program that lasts you know, a couple of months or a couple of years, it may not become obvious for quite some time that the dialogue and the impact of this moderate normative voice actually has on somebody. It could take quite some time before there's any evidence that in fact the person has abandoned the cause. Then there's the other issue of the other baggage that terrorist prisoners will bring with them into prison. I'm not a big fan of profiling, but it is true that in many cases... There are other problems, challenges, shall we say, that people have come across in their lives that coincide with their radicalization of violence, coincide with their development into terrorists. And we all know that there are prisons programs that deal with that. So something as simple as education. In many cases, there's a significant percentage of prisoners who have very low levels of education. One of the reasons that they turn to criminality may in fact be that they couldn't find relatively well-placed employment because of their lack of education so prisons will often offer schooling to to inmates so that's one possibility there are other prisoners obviously that have psychological issues and could have access to prison psychologists or psychiatrists to deal with those underlying mental problems that again do not excuse or account entirely for their trip into criminality but it certainly is a factor that you have to take into consideration and so If there are terrorist prisoners with analogous types of problems, you could look at that as a possibility to get them that kind of help. I I guess one of the things we have to start asking ourselves, and I've been talking to people about this lately, do we treat terrorist prisoners as we treat other prisoners? Meaning, do we not accord them a special place, giving them some idea uh, idea or sense of self-importance And we simply say, you're a prisoner one, two, three, like any other prisoner in the institution. And we will treat you like we treat other prisoners. You'll get the same privileges. You'll get the same penalties. And you will not be treated as a separate population. We're not going to give you that kind of status that you're seeking. Oh, I'm the terrorist on on the range. Oh, I'm the terrorist in this prison. In that way, the programs that are made available to terrorist prisoners are in fact the same programs made available to any inmate. That certainly is one possibility, but I would argue that, in fact, there is a distinct difference between a run-of-the-mill convict, regardless of the particular offense they have committed, and somebody who's been incarcerated for terrorist purposes. And it, what it comes down to is the very nature of terrorism itself. Terrorism is a crime. It's, it's, a, seri- it's the, uh, a serious act of violence that is carried out or planned, in the case of those whose plots are foiled for religious, ideological, or political reasons. And you can't say that for most criminals. Most criminals do not commit the crimes that they are responsible for out of any sense of ideology or background cause. They do it for other reasons. And I'm not a criminologist, so I'm not going to go down that road. But there is something different about terrorist prisoners, which to my mind means that at least to some extent, they need to be uh, singled out, need to be treated a little bit differently, because the rationales for why they're there are distinct from the rationales for reasons why other people are there. So I don't think we can necessarily draw the conclusion that the general programs that are available in prisons, and let's face it, there probably aren't enough programs in prison. I don't know what the recidivism rate is country by country, but I have heard that in some places it's as high as 75%, i.e. three quarters of those who exit the prison system go back to a life of crime, which means that whatever help they got in prison didn't take, or it wasn't the appropriate help, it didn't address the right issues, and they found they had no choice, or they simply liked to go back to the same life which landed them in prison in the first place. So it's hard to say whether these programs, in fact, uh, will make any difference. Uh, I would advocate certainly that terrorist prisoners do get the same types of benefits in terms of education and uh, medical, i.e. psychological assistance. But there's got to be the carving out of a little bit of different way of of doing it, because if you don't address the ideological underpinning or the ideological, political, religious substrate of terrorism, then why would you expect anybody on the other side, once they've finished the sentences, to abandon it? It, It's actually, it's kind of counterintuitive. The reasons why you went in are not being addressed, and so... I don't understand why we would assume you've abandoned them. Now, in some cases, that's true. And I certainly, in my time, have met with convicted terrorists who have, upon entering prison and spent some time there, had second thoughts, realized what they had done, tried to rationalize why they're there, and were simply very... They regretted. They thought they made a bad choice. And it was time to somehow undo that choice and to try to live a, a normal life. I know several of the, of the Toronto 18, for example, that I would judge based on my professional opinion, my professional experience, that I do think have put the ideology and terrorism behind them. I, I can't guarantee it 100%. They certainly could return to a life uh, at some point. I sincerely hope not. But I think, I think that we have to go on the assumption that just leaving somebody in prison without addressing the issues is not a solution, is not uh, an equation that will lead to a normal mainstream person once once the sentence has been completed. I think we have to assume the opposite. So you look at someone like John Walker Lynn, I have no idea what kind of program he received. He was at a very uh, maximum security prison in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. I don't know if he was held in isolation. I don't know if he had access to other prisoners. I don't know what other types of programming he may have received. And so now that he's been released, based on my time in security intelligence, my working assumption is that he's the same man going in, as uh, coming out rather, as he was going in. Again, I could be wrong, but I'd like to see evidence to point to the fact that he has abandoned the ideology. And this speaks to, I think, a, a bigger issue, and that is that we do need programming at some point. Just, you know, Throwing someone in prison and lock, you know, locking the door and throwing away the key is an option. And it certainly has been an option that's been exercised by some countries, United States among them. Uh, you know, life sentences where life means life. I mean, you're not getting out early. Or you can adopt like the Iraqi system whereby you don't even bother with prison. We certainly have seen the trials of I- Iraqi members of Islamic State who have had their trials. And five minutes after the trial, they're executed or sent away for, for execution. That's one model. I don't happen to support the model. It's the model that happens to exist in countries like Syria and Iraq. But I think that if we ignore this issue of prison radicalization, and we don't give it the um, time and effort to start thinking about what we can do, not only have we not resolved the problem in that people who enter and who eventually are released, and in Canada, that's almost a given, most people who are incarcerated will, in fact, get out someday. It's very rare to see a, a case like Alexander Bucinet He's the, the mosque shooter in Quebec City in January 2017, who will be a very old man if he gets out because of the sentence that, that has been imposed on him. But unless we want to essentially guarantee that those released from prison will simply return to a life of terrorism, either as perpetrators themselves or as radicalizers, and let's face it, If you've done 15, 20, 25 years in prison, you've taken one for the team and you you could act as a very important radicalizer of other people. You can say, I sacrificed my life for the cause. And while I am not in a position to actually do anything concrete, anything, uh, an actual act of terrorism, I can inspire you to do so. I can pass on knowledge to you. I can pass on some of the argumentation you can use to justify what you're doing. So if we don't want to get to a world like that, then we've got to think about what programs we need. And I I don't have any easy answers or solutions in this podcast. I've talked to a lot of people in correctional institutions across Canada and in other other countries. I think this is a tough nut. I think there are some good ideas out there, uh, counseling and programming, etc. Again, I'll go back to something I've been saying for a very long time. There's lots of good ideas out there and perhaps we should try them, but the The proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say, meaning if you propose program X to deal with radicalized prisoners, then you better come up with a way to measure whether program X is actually working. That is, the evaluation and measurement is something that is is woefully inadequate around the world when it comes to CVE, countering violent extremism, or de-radicalization, the term I don't like, is that there's lots of people who think that they've got solutions to this but really haven't demonstrated at least to the best, best of my knowledge or to my satisfaction that the program that they're actually engaged in will make a difference. As I said at the outset, the prison radicalization problem is not going away. We're going to have foreign fighters coming back and some of them will in fact find their way into a prison cell. They will be there as a potential influence on others. We will have domestic terrorists who are being incarcerated as well. They will act as inspiration or as mentors for other prisoners. This problem is not going away. And so I think it may be it's time to give it a little bit more attention. Again, luckily in a country like Canada, uh, we, 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 we have a small end problem to begin with. We, I, we don't have a lot of terrorists in prison. And I doubt very much that's going to increase significantly in the next, next couple of years. So you could almost say, well, is, is it that big of a problem? No, it's not. And maybe there are other issues like gang membership in prisons that are much more important, but I don't think you want to ignore the possibility of prison radicalization. If for no other reason that if even one terrorist gets out of prison, not having been rehabilitated, not having abandoned the ideology, and who successfully carries out an act of terrorism upon his or her release, you can imagine the headlines. You can imagine the blowback on the government that allowed this to happen. So watch this space. I think that We'll see more attention paid to prison radicalization and what to do about it in the months and years to come. I am hopeful that there are people a lot smarter than I am who are thinking about this idea and what to do about it. And I'll be very interested to see what kind of proposals are coming forward and to see if they work. Well, that's it for podcast number 10. I hope sincerely hope that you enjoy it. I'd love to hear from you, hear your feedback. You can reach me at borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can leave comments after the podcast itself or you can reach me on Twitter at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Until then, stay safe.